Hello and welcome to Fly With Your Shadow, the podcast all about music, mental health and illness, and the mess that the COVID pandemic has made of it all. My name's Jeff Robson, and this show comes to you from my home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. This show came about out of a desire to talk about issues and topics that all too often aren't spoken about. The idea was to get people to talk about their struggles and the difficult events and issues that have gotten in their way. Whenever we face a difficult situation, one of the most important things that we can do to minimize the damage and make sure that we can understand the problem and not let it hold us back too long is to talk about it. But the more difficult the topic, the harder it is to talk about, and the more stigma and misunderstanding builds up around it, which only leads to more harm and keeps us from moving on past it. Lately, I've become really interested in the power of trauma in shaping people's lives. Today's show features a story of trauma that's honestly really difficult to hear. This might be the most intensely emotional episode of this show so far, and it's one that many listeners might find difficult or disturbing. It's a sad, unfortunate story about a young boy who was sexually abused by a Catholic priest and the devastating effects that it had on him and his family. If these topics might be difficult for you to hear about, or if you have a strong attachment to the Catholic Church, this might not be the episode for you. If you're willing and able to listen, I hope that you'll give us a try and come to understand this story. The story came to light in a powerful new song and video by a singer-songwriter duo that I've loved and admired for over a decade. You were never gonna be on the hockey team You were already high on the door I can see you clear, your uniform Sunday's over my name is Brenly McEachran, and um, I am a singer-songwriter in a duo called Madison Violet. We've uh, been working together for 22 years now, so we started with just right out of the womb, <laughs> I'd like to say. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm a touring musician who has clearly not toured in, uh, well, since pandemic. Multi-instrumentalist singer and songwriter Lisa McIsaac and singer-songwriter Brenly McEachran formed the duo Mad Violet somewhere near the turn of the millennium and released a few successful, acclaimed, award-winning recordings before being signed by powerful Canadian indie label True North Records and expanding their name to Madison Violet for the album No Fool for Trying, which was released in 2009. When I first heard that record, I was hooked immediately. It's one of those ones that I can actually still remember listening to for the first time, even though it was a dozen or so years ago. That album is probably their most acoustic and rootsy album, and it showed Lisa and Brenly's instrumental talents, their strong vocals and harmonies, and contained some incredibly strong songwriting. That album opened the duo up to even more attention and acclaim and award nominations. They released two studio albums and one live one on True North Records before moving on and releasing a few more albums since then. They're always in demand in Europe, and they spend much of their time touring that continent. Although long known and appreciated for powerful and personal lyrics, last month Madison Violet released a song that really blew me away. In an introduction to the song's video, which you can see at flywithyourshadow.com, Brenly says... 
This is a story about my brother Stevie, who was murdered in 2006 when he was 45 years old. At the age of 11, Stevie became an altar boy under the care of a priest named Father Alistair J. Olinsky. He survived a period of abuse that I know he never fully recovered from. This was a hard song to write, and it came with a lot of tears, but I know Stevie would want me to share his story. It's time to write the wrong. The effect that the abuse had on Stevie led to his life unraveling and spiraling out of control and eventually led to his murder. Although Stevie is the one who directly suffered through the abuse, his loving family members suffered a different kind of trauma, watching a beloved family member struggle so visibly. Rightly, Brenly is emotional telling his story. She also carries and conveys a lot of anger towards the perpetrator and an organization that seems rife with such stories. Again, I'll kind of warn you, this episode, especially the second half, may not be for everyone. If you or someone you know has experienced sexual assault, there are many mental health professionals that may be of help. There are links to many great organizations on the show's website at flywithyourshadow.com. With all that in mind, here's my talk with Brenly McEachern, which was recorded on Canada's first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which gave many Canadians the opportunity to learn about a long covered up history of similar abuse and damage done to Indigenous children in this country. I'm no fool, fool for trying. Don't know what you miss until it's gone. Now, before we get to the obvious elephant in the room of the past uh, year and a half, um, Madison Violet, I, I'm here in Winnipeg. I, I don't think you guys have, have been to Winnipeg for quite some time. And uh, um, so I'm just wondering if you can kind of catch people up, if anybody kind of hasn't seen you for a while, what, what you've been up to over the past uh, few years. Well, I'm trying to think. I guess the last time we played Winnipeg would have been the Winnipeg Folk Festival, which was, yeah, that's been some time. Uh, we tour a lot internationally. We've done several German, Switzerland, Scandinavian tours, the UK. Um, we've done some, I was living in California for three years. So we started doing some West Coast California tours. Um, and then, of course, on uh, you know, Canada, East Coast, Ontario. So we've just been touring a lot. And then for the last um, year, I guess, well, back in uh April, Lisa and I both went to Berkeley College of Music. We did some online courses uh, studying basically how to engineer and record and produce our own material. So now we're uh, producing our own record for the first time. This will be our 11th record. And we've always hired a producer. And this is the first time we're trying it ourselves and having more fun than I can possibly imagine. Like it's it's really, really lovely to have the skill set to be able to do it yourself, I have to say. Yeah, there's there's a few things I want to ask there. But but one thing that's always bugged me, why are there so few female producers? Like, why is it just one of those industries where it seems so dominated by men? Do you have any idea? Yeah. Well, I think it's a, you know, because I've talked to a lot of female producers and it was really just having the confidence because you kind of get boxed out. Like I can, I can tell you how many, I can't even tell you how many times we've, you know, you go up on, you, you arrive at a club, let's say you're going to do your sound check and 
you know, they kind of like a lot of the times guys will just sort of treat you like you don't even know what a DI is or you don't know what it is, what this is or whatever. So you just kind of bite your tongue a little because you just don't want to, to go there. You don't want to get upset. You don't want to, you know, but then there comes a time where you're just kind of like, you have to just say exactly what you need. And if they give you any business whatsoever, um, you, you know, as soon as you know what you're, you, you tell them what you know, what you're talking about, they kind of shut up and start listening for the most part. But a lot of guys will just, it's an oversight to think that a girl would know, you know, what it, it's amazing. Like they really just don't, because because there's not that many role models out there. So if you don't have the people, you know, if you don't have like someone who's 50, 60, 70 year old women who are, have been producing all their lives, well, you're not going to find them. They're far and few, you know, few between, but now you'll see, now you'll see more, you know, because now you're seeing, you know, women and, and young girls making YouTube stars of themselves. Well, when you're doing YouTube, you're, you know, you're now learning how to do it at, at home on your own. So they're learning the software They're So now we'll have role models. And I think that that's going to change. It's just, just there's going to be a lot of time in between that it's going to take before that happens, before we see it happen. Uh, like, do you still experience that kind of sexism in the world or are you mostly talking about when you guys started out? Um, it's, it's not as common now because I think there's a bigger conversation happening. And I think guys are listening to that and they're just going, Oh wow. Yeah. You know what? I, I probably did that. And I didn't mean to do that, but I did, you know, and now they see, what's happening and so it's it's definitely changing and it's been quite some time since i felt uh like i've been confronted with sexism to be honest which is good i'm glad that i can say that now um so now kind of having having the the education of a of a producer how does that change your approach to to making records now like do you guys do you guys kind of see yourselves making different kinds of records or doing things differently now that you can, you have those skills to do it yourself. Yeah. I mean, you don't, now you don't have to explain to a producer or to a musician who's playing on your record, what they, what, what you're hearing. Cause you can just do it yourself. Um, you know, and then if it's a, you know, I'm not like a lead guitar player. And if I need a certain kind of skill set in a guitar player, or we need a bass player, now we have all the confidence to just say, well, this is what what we're looking for. And if they send it back and it's not quite right, I feel okay just saying, listen, it sounds lovely, but it's not it's not what I was thinking. Can you try this? And, you know, the people we work with, the guys we work with or women we work with are more than happy to just go, no, no, no this is your record. Um, so what do you, I'm happy to try that. And in the end, everyone always seems to be thinking like in the end, it's like, yeah, actually that's great. I would never have thought to do that. And then other times you send it out and you don't with no instruction whatsoever. And it comes back exactly what you wanted because that's why you sent it to that specific musician because that's their style. And you're looking for that style, you know? So I guess being at the helm and learn and just knowing that that's what, I mean, that's what producers do. They, so now we're just putting on that hat and going, what well, we've been seeing, we've been 
making records for 20 years where it's like you're auditing the class, you know? Um, and now we have the fundamentals of the soft. We use Ableton Live and we know the software well. And so now we, yeah, we can do, we know that we don't want to mix our own record or master. We'll get the people who that's where they spend all their time. So I think it would be foolish for us to think that we could mix our own stuff at this point. We don't have that skill set yet, you know? Is there a danger though in doing too much yourself or, or having, or not having kind of that outside perspective of a producer? Do, do you think there's some inherent kind of concern about, uh, you know, not, not getting the kind of feedback that sometimes a producer can provide or that objectivity? Well, luckily, I think, yes, there is, there, I suppose there is a danger. And I think the way we are handling that is we have like John Reynolds, who produced our first two records in the, in the UK, he's kind of my mentor at the moment. So when I, you know, I'll send him mixes, like my rough mixes and say like, you know, what do you think? And then he might make a comment or he might just go like wow this these songs are fabulous and he'll lead me down he's been very very helpful and then our my friend Sarah McDougall who's a producer and Hill Cacordis who produced our last record they're both amazing like you know asking you can always reach out to them and ask them for for advice on certain things but when it comes down to actually the song itself and the instrumentation I've I don't know. I think that we have done 10 records with very little input other than writing the song and, and doing this, the whole structure and everything and arrangement. We have very little input in what goes on it. Like we will say yes or no, but you know, we're letting them produce it. So now we're just allowing ourselves to produce it. You know, so if it if we if it comes out in the record like, oh, you guys went very wrong. Well, that's okay. It's okay. Um, I you know I've the biggest mistakes I've made are the ones that I've learned the most from. So that's okay with me. And uh, I mean, have you started this process of of making an album yourselves now? Like, is this already underway, or is this still in the planning stages? You no, know, we started in June, so we've been recording for. Well, June, July, August, September, three, four months solid. And uh, we, you know, it'll be done by the end of probably next month. And it's been going really well. And it's, you know, we didn't, Lisa and I, for the first 10 years of our relationship, we're we're a couple. And then for the last uh, 11 years, we've, we have not been a couple, but we've still been in, you know, work together professionally. And, you know, we... We've always continued this relationship um, because when we hit the stage, it's it's magical for us. We get along so well. Uh, we trust each other. We we uh, um, you know compel one another to to challenge ourselves, and um, so that's been great. But you know sometimes off stage or at rehearsals or whatever, we can really get at each other and we don't always agree. And it can, you know, it can get pretty foul sometimes. It's been quite a long time since we've had a, like a a big fight. And during this entire process, it's gone so smoothly. We've really, 
we're giving each other a lot of space to do what we, you know, what we do best. And we're relying on each other's uh, talents and, and the same, and, and also challenging one another. It's been, it's really been really, it's just been so good. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm obviously not as emotionally uh, mature as you are because I can't imagine what would be more difficult, uh, working with my partner every day or working with my ex every day. Like, so, right. so the fact that you were still able to, to make such great music and, and be such great friends, um, so many years after that's, that obviously speaks to the, to the magic that, that comes when you two play together because you're such talented musicians on your own you could go off and do your own thing probably right and, it, and and i'm sure it would be great but but what keeps you coming back to you and lisa being medicine violet i think we're both i mean we are both libra we're both born on a wednesday at noon uh and we and i think we've found sort of a balance in one another so when one person is really uh, out of balance, out of focus, the other comes in, r- comes rushing in to make everything even keel again, it feels like. And I think, you know, I would love to do my own record and I'm, I'm sure Lisa would do her own record. And I think we, now that we know how to record ourselves and, pr- and produce ourselves, I think that we'll, we'll both have a solo record in the future. But when it comes to touring and, and whatnot, I think we'll just always, um, always keep making records together and, and touring together because it's, it's, it's kind of fun to go down a road with someone else and not always alone, you know? Um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of like share, you share in the trouble and you share in the good things and it's, it, it's a little, a little easier on the heart, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I've always been a, a team player. Like even as we were both very athletic as kids played a lot of sports and, it was always team sports. Like even if we played ta- tennis, it would be doubles, you know, like, so it's, I think it's just kind of in us to need that sort of solidarity in somebody else. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's a weakness or, or we just get along well together and like, and like having company. I don't know. And after, after 20 years together, you, you must feel a bit of a sense of a, a legacy. Like when you look back on those 20 years, you guys have, have had so much success and and won awards and been to so many places you you must be real proud of what you've accomplished together i am you know i i uh you always have these dreams of you know traveling all over the world in the big tour buses and i mean we have toured in other people's tour buses but we certainly have not gotten to a place where we're you know, would we want if if someone said to you, what would be the level of success that would make you, you know, feel like you've really, I don't know, I don't even want to say made it, but would it be nice to be selling out some soft theaters and so that it's a little more sustainable for your future? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And you're reaching more people. And so when I, you know, we just played a, a festival on the weekend in Huntsville at a, an outdoor nursery. And, uh, and it was, it was so fun. Like it was so fun to get, like, haven't had a played a show in almost two years. And to hear that applause was so nice. And, and these were like diehard fans that came to this show. These were our fans 
it was a free show, but these were our fans that came. And cause we asked, we were like, how many people have seen us before? And like 75% of the people put their hands up and that's so lovely. And, um, you know, you know, there's, you think about it and you're like, wow, how can I take this group of people and time kind of by about 10, you know, and it, we don't, we never die. Like, listen, we've never done this for the money. I mean, it would be a, would it be a silly choice and career to do it for the money because we've done it this long it sure would be nice to have start building a nest egg that's all i'm saying you know isn't it getting harder and harder to do that though in the uh in the world where selling records isn't really a thing anymore and streaming royalties are so terrible is it is it getting more uncertain and harder to keep going yeah it is i mean it's i don't know if it's harder to keep going because we don't know what else to do, so we keep on doing it. Um, <laughs> I think that I would love to get into producing other um, singer-songwriters, predominantly female, and hopefully more in the BIPOC community as well. I, I really want to, the more I learn, the more I want to help other people. I'm, not, I'm still not going to do it for the money. Um, but I still want to be involved if I'm not touring for the rest of my life. I want to be involved with with musicians and, and in some way. You know, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll be on a or maybe Lisa, one of us will be on a you know, doing a play or something. Who knows? Like a, a musical. And I don't know. I never know what's in store. And I, I one thing that I've I learned a lot. Well, a couple of years ago, just before before pandemic. I read uh, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, and it kind of changed me. And I don't really spend that much time thinking about tomorrow. I really, and I'm really happy that I've developed that skill because thinking about the, you know, what could go wrong is when you're just worrying about it twice. It's the way I have it. So I don't, when you ask me, like, you think it's getting harder? Well, it is getting harder, but. I'm not going to let it knock me down. Talk to me a bit about the the past couple of years in particular, that your last record, uh, Everything's Shifting, right? Came out in 2019, I believe. I, I don't remember what, what time of year, like how much, how much time did you have with that record before everything ground to a halt? Um, I'm trying to think. Not that much time. I think, you know, I can't, I'm trying to think of when it came out. Uh... I'm going to say May or June of 2019, but I could be wrong. We had some time. We had a couple of tours, um, but not uh, not a ton of time, I guess. But again, like it's you need a new record to tour, and yet records aren't what's selling. It's kind of an interesting, you know... Now it's about singles, you know, we'll probably, we'll, we'll, now it'll just be one song at a time and then the record kind of thing. That album though, seemed to get a lot of, a lot of great reaction. You of course won some awards and, uh, and it's, it seemed to do pretty well. So, um, is there a, is there a frustration or a sadness when you, when you get this thing that, that you're so proud of, and then all of a sudden you can't go and work it for as long and as well as you would have liked? I don't even know if it was a thought I had, to be honest. I, I just, um, I was going through a, a breakup right at the beginning of pandemic and, and into a new relationship. And I think that that kind of took over my entire world. 
Um, I went through a divorce and Lisa shortly after went through a, an 11 year breakup as well, a breakup after 11 years. So I think the last thing that was on our mind was, was actually the record. Yeah. It, you know, because it, 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 it comes down to like your own personal nightmare and I, I'm, I've been pretty good at separating myself from my job. You know, I don't, I don't identify as Brenly McEachern and Madison Violet. I just identify as just me as a person in this world, I guess. So I, I don't know. I just didn't get caught up in the, oh no, poor me. I we really can't tour this record. I just took it as it came. We were in Saskatchewan when, in the middle of a a tour of Saskatchewan. We were in Saskatoon and, you know, called a friend. They said, hey, listen, I think they might be closing the borders because of this virus thing. You might want to get home. So we like showed up in Air Canada like immediately and they just put us on the next flight. We went home and uh, I went to stay with my new partner on the farm and never left. So, yeah, so I haven't thought much about it except for now with this new record, yeah, okay, I'm starting to think about like, okay, really, I hope that we have a way to tour this new record next year, you know? But I have to catch myself because I know that getting it, you know, you shouldn't have attachments because when you have attachments on the future, um, it's not a good idea. What was that like all of a sudden because you've spent so much of your life and obviously made so much of your income on the road to suddenly not be able to do that? How do you kind of shift personally and financially to not having shows to do? Well, luckily for me personally, I had bought a house, like a loft in Toronto, and I sold it to my ex. And so um, the, the housing market in Toronto was, was very good. So I got a healthy return. And so I kind of have my nest egg again. Um, and uh, I bought an Airstream, a, a 1972 Airstream. I, I got my brother to come with me to pick it up in his nice truck. We pulled it back to the farm. I have it parked right beside the, the house where I'm living. And, um, and I built a, a studio in it. And it's been the most incredible. I've never had my own space to create in. And it's like, you know, 20 steps from the house. It's got air conditioning. It has uh, heaters and it's the, it's my, it's, I love it. I couldn't, I'm in love with it. Honestly, I spend so much time in it. And so I didn't spend too much time crying about not being on the road because I was so happy in my new space. Did the creativity just keep going just because you had the space and you had the time now, or, or was it hard to find the creativity. A lot of people I talked to had a hard time being creative for a while. Well, I wasn't writing much for sure. Um, I, for the first bit I was, I actually, that's not, that's not true. At first I was writing quite a bit. And then for some reason I stopped and never recorded any of those songs. I had little audio memos of them. And then this Berkeley course came up and I thought, okay, you know what? We gotta, we have to start thinking about a new record we can't be off the road for this long and not have something to show for it plus my manager our manager is going to kill us so 
um, <laughs> and our agent and all the team members that you know that we work with. This is you need to have a product or nobody cares. So we did this course. It was three months. Um, it was amazing. And, you know, we started working on the record. And I remember the conversation. Lisa said, you know, we don't have many songs. And I said, you know what? Every single record we've ever made, we have all the songs finished, the structure, all the lyrics written, everything. We go into the studio and then we lay it down. We get the, the rhythm section down and then we hide, and then we bring in the players and boom, we mix it. We master it. It's out no chance to sit with these songs and see where are the weak links in the song because there's going to be so this so i told lisa i said listen because we can reproduce this ourselves and because we have now own our own studio like i own my own studio you have a studio space at your house now we can do this and take as much time as we want the lyrics don't need to be done they don't need to be Nothing needs to be done. We just have to start with the sketches and see how they build. And it's that's why it's been so fun. And I've been more creative than I ever have in my entire life because I've been given this gift of time and to not have to have it finished, you know? And um, And I think it's probably like, I'm sure the Beatles didn't just like, you know, you know, John Lennon just sit down and write a song and then they go in and record it. No, they probably played it many times. And like they were, you know, they spent all that time in Hamburg. They were probably playing these songs over and over and over and changing them. You know, I haven't seen a lot of the Beatles, uh, you know, all their the films they've made. I should. I've, one of the things I should have done on this <laughs> on pandemic and looks like I still have time. As a fan, what what do you think? Am I going to notice a difference either in the sound or the or the content of this record? Do you think once you get done with it? Um, gee, I don't know. I mean, there are some songs that are more sort of stripped back. I know our fans really love to hear the more stripped back acoustic stuff, and there's definitely. Um, cause I just sent a song to John Reynolds to mix it. And it's really just both of our voices, guitar, banjo, and fiddle, because that's all the song really needed. And, but there's some other songs that are, you know, pretty full on production. And it's, I would say that it's a really a combination of the music that we grew up on, like the stuff that I listened to. I listened to a lot of, like when I was in my first year of college, I was into Cat Stevens and well, Neil Young, I've known like been, he was my hero since I was like 11, but you know, I got into a lot of Cat Stevens and then all of a sudden I moved to another town and I got right into the Brit pop. Like I got into the stone roses and the cure and the Smiths and, you know, all that synthy stuff that's still, it's still in there. You know, there's some amazing songwriting back there and sonically I loved it. And so there's some sort of modern twists on that, you know, I'm really into uh, kind of lo-fi indie, um, I, like when I'm sometimes when I'm just like working on the tracks, but not listening, but I'm just kind of organizing, I'll be listening to like lo-fi study tracks, like beats. And so there, sometimes there's that kind of feel 
underneath underneath it. Like I'm right into all for Arnold Arnold's right now. And I know his vibe is going to make it onto this record because it's what I'm listening to. So I will pay homage to him, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think, you know, we have a sound, I think that's created just by the, the two big instruments, which is both of our voices that blend together. So you know, but I'm really one thing I'm really excited about the the songwriting on this record. You know, that's one thing I think it's this is these are some of the best songs we've ever written. Why do you say that, though? Because when I think of of the songs that you've written over the past uh, however many records it's been, I mean, I came on board like a lot of people, I guess, with No Fool for Trying. And, and there's some amazing songs on there and, and the records that have come since then. So. So what what do you feel like is uh, it makes these ones better than some of those songs that I love from those records? Um, you know, I think it's a good question, and I've been kind of been asking myself it too because I'm like, why do I, why am I so like, like I can't sleep at night right now because the songs are just going through my head constantly. And maybe that happened on every record. I don't know. I, I I should write that down. I should, but it always feels like a new experience for me. But I really can't get it out of my. It's it's driving me bonkers, honestly. And um, well, one we are. I think, you know, my my niece was killed in a car accident five years ago, and it's taken me five years to to write. I tried writing. I've, tr- I've written numerous songs and I, I couldn't sing any of them. I didn't, I sang one of them once in a show in Germany. And, you know, I had written songs about my brother Stevie in the past. Both Lisa and I have written songs about my brother Stevie. And when those, when we sang those songs, there was an energy in the room that was incredibly supportive and, it was sad, but it was really like people really embraced it. I could tell. So it was like, okay, I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve. And also these, these fans who are listening are happy to hear it and can find themselves in it. And that's, that's a job well done in my opinion. And then when I sang this song um, for my niece, I'd sang it the one time and I could just feel like the audience it was like, no, that's that song doesn't tell us, you know, it's too obscure. It's not telling us where your heart is. It, that's kind of what I felt. And I never I never sang it again. And um, but now I'm at a place where I can find those, you know, I can I can see it now and I can I can say exactly what I wanted to say to her or to my sister who lost her. And so I think maybe that's why I think the songwriting's good. No Fool for Trying, I think, was our best record. And I think it's because it was our real healing record. You know, we tried, and I think this is a record where we're healing again. Um, Lisa's breakup is is on this record. You know, it's, and that trauma of, of she, you know, I think, yeah, maybe that's it. We're just being really out there with, with, what really happened and um you know but telling it in a way that doesn't make people cringe if that makes any sense yeah 
But I mean, your songs have always had that that way of kind of reaching into people's hearts. I'm, I'm sure that you've heard hundreds of stories from people over the years from some of your songs that, you know, you obviously write from a place of personal emotion and personal experience, like I, I would assume with a lot of these songs, but obviously they're they're touching a lot of other people as well. So, so when you write them, I mean, are you writing them mostly for yourself? Is that your therapy or are you thinking of, you know, kind of reaching people's hearts with those songs at the same time? I think it's, I think it's both. I think like, I don't want, and, and I think that's where I learned about that song that I wrote for Annalise that I sang. And I'm like, wow, this song was really for me. And this was really, really obscure. And now, and it didn't reach people because they couldn't find their own, they couldn't find the loss in it because I was too, huh, I don't even know if obscure is the right word, but I didn't give them any, um, pain in it if that makes sense i and other songs were just like me kind of like this song time to write the wrong about my brother it's gone on too long it's time to write the wrong and i can just imagine how your life was unraveling that came out in a I'm sure that took no longer than an hour. And I felt like I didn't even write it. Like Lisa's like writing down stuff that I was saying. And, and then we picked up the guitars and then we just started, it just came out. And, you know, it's exactly how, this is a true story of kind of how it happened. One sort of blip, you know? Well, I mean, obviously that, that song's a big part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you today. It's an, it's an amazing story. Can you give me a bit of context though, about your, like, how big is your family? How, how many siblings do you have? And, and like, were you guys super close when you were growing up? Yeah, we, so my parents, um, met in Montreal. My mom was hitchhiking and, uh, my dad, the Cape Bretoner, when my mom was born in England and then grew up in Montreal when she, she moved there and she was like four my dad was driving, was living, was had a job in Montreal. They met, and then he got a job um, at uh, Ontario Hydro in King Carden. And so, after having four kids, piled us all in the car, and we moved to King Carden. My brother Stevie was uh, probably ten at the time, and I was four at the time. And I have another sister, Kate, who's 11, young, 11 months younger than my oldest brother, Stevie. And then Kenny, who's three years older than me. And um, we uh, started going to church because my dad was a Catholic. And they moved to this tiny little town and knew zero, like nobody. And um, so my mom decided she would convert to Catholicism which meant all four of us kids had to go to catechism classes. And um, the priest there, Father Olinsky, he, uh, you know, was talking to my parents and asked if Stevie could be an altar boy. And eventually Kenny and my other brother was an altar boy as well. And um, he, the priest, it's so textbook. Like he used to come to our house and with candies and, you know, totally ingratiate himself with, with my parents and just tell, tell them how special a boy Stevie was. And he bought him a 1970 CT70 Honda uh, motorcycle. He took him to Florida and 
you know, when my parents would inquire, he would say, oh, well, I don't have any kids of my own. And, you know, Stevie seemed such like a lonely kid. And, um, and then, you know, then when my parents did suspect something was up when they asked him, he denied it completely. Stevie denied it because, of course, by that time, it's too late. You know, they've, they've already got the kid under their wings saying you can't tell anyone or, you know, we don't know exactly. He finally admitted it to my, to my mom and dad when he was around 17. Um, but his life was already destroyed. He was already, you know, selling drugs and, um, he was, he, he ran away from home when he was 15. It was just, yeah, he just always, from then on, it was a struggle and until the day he died and then he was murdered in in Toronto in 2006. Uh, Talking about is is important, right? Like, like, why did you decide that now was time to right the wrong and it was time to tell this story in this way? You know, I remember when the movie Spotlight, did you ever see the movie Spotlight? Yeah. Yeah, so that was in, I think, 2016. I think that movie came out. And which was the year my niece Annalise was killed, and um, I, I've I've always like wanted to tell the truth, but I always thought, well, you know, my parents are getting up there. Do I really want to tell that? Do I really want to, you know, expose our family and what what they went through? And and my parents feeling, of course, because they would blame themselves. I didn't want any of that. And um, and then I just I wrote some songs and my parents just I wrote the the time to write. Well, we, we wrote time to write the wrong and we played it and they never really said much about it. Like they didn't they weren't against it. You know, like they were they didn't feel like they were like, well, it's true. And I know you have to say it. And as a matter of fact, I did an interview yesterday with my hometown paper and they, the woman was so kind. She said, listen, this is in your hometown. Do you, you want the people, do you want to ask your parents first how they feel about having this story told in there and then have to walk down the streets? And I said, you know, it is bothering me, so I will phone them, and I phoned them this morning, and, and they just, you know, they're they're the best parents in the world. They said, listen, if you need to do this, then you ha- then you do this, but if, if it was up to us, because it's our town, we don't, we would rather not, but you have to do what you have to do, and that was my answer, so I'm pulling the story in my town, because it doesn't need to go there, you know, like, but the story does need to be told because, you know, even it's like just watching these resident, the residential schools and what happened there. Like when that came up, like that was just, I just was, you know, so heartbroken to see like how many, like thousands and thousands of children have gone through this and are still going through it now. And so it, it took me a while because I, I just, yeah, I just didn't want to tell the story while my parents were still living. And then I'm like, well, then my parents might live till they're a hundred. I might die before my parents. I can't sit here with this in eating me up inside. And 
and also I, you know, people, I, I, this is, I'm not like going out. I wasn't going after the church. I just want the truth. Like I just want people to start telling the truth, but if it means going after the church, then I will do that too, because we have to, you know, these are all these allegations. They just kept getting swept under the table. This priest of my, that was the one we went to father Olinsky. He moved from, parish to parish to parish he was moved all over i finally got his obituary and he must have worked at 12 different parishes and he died when he was 61 years old so you know that's and then that means that the the, the hamilton diocese they knew about it right they had to have they had to have so they need to be held accountable for covering it up can you talk at all about the about the cost like on your like what was he like before this happened and and sort of how did it you know lead to his his kind of spiral down like what was the process like of kind of losing him i guess well you know we he didn't want to you know my dad told me he remembers when we went back to montreal um for a visit you know, a year after or whatever, we were in King Carden and he ran away. And my, he said my dad had to like run across these fields after him to get him back in the car. You know, and he, I remember him thinking like, man, because it was probably already happening, but he couldn't tell his parents. So he was a, you know, he just was always into trouble. He couldn't, he was, um, he had bad skin he had terrible terrible acne as a kid and so that kind of you know made him a bit of a he got bullied uh, he fell one time and he smashed his front teeth and um, broke his teeth so his teeth were broken and until my parents could afford to get them fixed he, he had to live like that for a while and that couldn't have been easy on him he was a great brother to me like I, you know, he always, if my other siblings were, if we were fighting, he would always be the one to run to my rescue. He was lovely. Um, he, you know, but he just, trouble found him everywhere. And he, he got into the worst of crack cocaine. And he spent time, one time he stole a car. He, from in King Carden, he drove it to Orangeville. And to a Tim Hortons and sat there for the cops just to come get him because he didn't know what he, where he was going or what he was doing. He just needed to get out of King Carden, you know? And um, so he went to like detention centers for that. I think he was in Walkerton and he spent time in Brampton because he ended up going on a joyride one time with, you know, some, some other guys and he was driving and they stole this van and then he got thrown in jail for being, for having stolen something under five, whatever the charges for under a certain amount of money, you know? So he was in a detention, big detention center for that. And I loaned him my guitar. I had a 12 string guitar that my parents had bought for my uh, graduation present when I was 17. So I loaned it to him because I had another guitar. <clears throat> And I went to see him inside in the jail and he learned how to play um, a couple of Rolling Stones songs. Like he'd never played guitar in his life and he just taught himself to play. I, get, I think I might've given him a couple of books as well. And 
I thought that was amazing. And he was super smart. He went back to George Brown College when he was in his 30s and he t- graduated at the top of his class uh, as an IT specialist. But I, and he worked in some fabric shops as that. He worked at the, the, uh, he worked as a waiter, or sorry, not a waiter, a bartender at um, big fancy hotel in Toronto. He was, he kind of, you know, he hung around with a little bit of like, you know, like professors of at U of T. Like he was kind of hung around with a little bit of the upper echelon, you know, a bit, because that's his vocabulary was very articulate, you know. Um, but I'm pretty sure. Well, he told me, so I know for a fact. He basically was on crack and still going to school and finished top of his class. So he had the addiction. I mean, he had the addiction that could never break because I think the demons and the shame that he carried around with him was just so dark. And I mean, like, is he the kind of guy who was able to talk about his feelings and talk about what had happened? Like, was he aware of the impact of what had happened to him at that church or? Not really. I, I wanted like, you know, it's my, my regret is not asking him more about it. I couldn't at the time. I I think I was couldn't sit in my own discomfort to to um to ask him about it. I mean, it wasn't just the priest like he ended up um kind of prostituting himself a bit I guess because he always ended up with older men, you know, and uh, I think that's where he knew he could survive. So, he was he was, he was still ashamed. I know that he, he met this guy, Robert, when he was like, I think he was 17 or 18. He, I have a letter from him that he sent to me from India because he was like a, he was a drug mule. He was brought to India, the British Virgin Islands. Um, he would send us these beautiful, beautifully written letters. And he wrote one to me, one to my brother, Stevie, and one to my sister, Kate, and one to my mom. And I remember he sent her like this beautiful tablecloth from India. And, um, but he was essentially a drug mule, like, you know, and uh, yeah, like what a story he's got. Yeah. And I mean, what, what effect does this have on you while watching this, somebody you love struggling so much? Oh, it was like, you know, he came to live with me one time for a couple of months. And, you know, my ex was just at one point, just like, you know what, this, he's got it. I can't do this anymore. Because, you know, he would he would drink and come home at all hours of the night. Like, it just, it just wasn't working out. And so I tried. I took him to countless detox centers. Um, he went to a number of different houses where you you know, journal and learn to try and like give up, you know, like basically where addicts go after they've been detoxed. And, um, but it just never worked, you know, it would work for a while. And, you know, I, I didn't, it was hard 
you know, because he's, I would, I, knowing what I know now and how I've changed as a person, I would have, and, and I've just grown into being more compassionate and have, and now I, you know, know how I wish I'd had more empathy, I guess, back then. I always went when he, when he called me and he needed me, never once did I ever say no. So I'm thankful for that. But I know now, like, I wish I would have tried in different ways. You know, I wish I could have reached him and, but I don't know that anybody else can heal anybody else. I think you have to heal from the inside, you know? Hopefully you don't feel, you know, too much responsibility for any of this. Obviously it's, none of it's certainly your fault, right? Like none of it's, you, you're kind of a victim of the, of the same horrors that, uh, that he went through in a way, cause it, it, it's affected you as well. So. You can't really expect that you could have done anything to fix it. So, No, the only thing I could have done is I can remember this conversation and I always, I play it over and over in my head. And I remember him saying to me something along the lines is of like, don't you think everyone's bisexual? And I was um, sort of coming out myself, but not ready to come out. But I was... I had started seeing this woman and I wasn't ready to, you know, be out and I, and I wasn't going to tell him yet. And so I know my reaction to that was like, dude, I don't know. And kind of just like, I'm not comfortable. Stop. I'm not comfortable talking about this right now. You know, eventually I did get a chance to tell him that I was with Lisa. And I remember um, him like being just so, astonished like wow and you know but he was he was great um and but you know he had this girlfriend debbie for the for a hundred years like not a hundred years but for like 17 years but even with debbie he was still he's still lost you know like i so i don't know i don't even know if he was you know what if he knew what I think he was very confused with his own sexuality, to be honest. When you heard that he, he'd passed away, was, was it a surprise? Was it a bit of a relief in some way that he was finally at peace from the demons or, or did you just feel like, I wish we could have turned this around? Well, the, it was absolutely shocking. Um, I always thought, that if we got the call i thought that i would be prepared but my preparation would always be for he's od'd never that he was murdered never that he was strangled to death so that was just shocking you know like what has happened like and um and that guy it's not the first time this guy, Norman English, it's not the first time that um, he assaulted someone. So, you know, he assaulted, he says that my brother tried to steal his wallet and that seems really not, my brother would be more the kind of person that would walk into a Walmart and walk out with a television without paying for it. Just, just so that he could get a hit. Okay. But to steal something from someone definitely not 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 him at all like not no way 
So, but I don't know, you know, I wasn't there, but regardless, there were people who watched that said that the, there were people watching him. He, Stevie was unresponsive and he was still strangling him. Um, so, and the guy got off, um, with 18 months probation. He was charged with second degree murder and then it was reduced to, um, something, assault cause causing bodily harm. That's it. Yeah. And I was going to go to that, to the trial. And luckily when I was in, I was on tour in Australia and there was this wonderful person sitting in the front. And after the show, he came up to me and he said, um, he said, I'd love to, he goes, I, I just want to ask you, like, how's your mom? He's like, wow, that's the first time anyone's ever really asked me how my mom is. And it was just kind of an interesting question to ask first. And then we got to talking and we sat down and had a drink together. And he told me, he said, I know this is going to sound strange because I've just met you and you don't know me at all. And I don't know you. He said, but something tells me that you should not go to this trial. He goes, I feel like, like you will try and save this person. Like you will try and forgive them and try and then help them through it. And that's not for you to do. That's not your job here. And he was right. I probably would have exactly done that. The little Mother Teresa and me, that would probably have just been brought to the surface. And, you know, I would have thought like me forgiving him as part of this process and whatever. And I don't, I didn't need to go and see him and meet him to um to to be able to let it go to to forgive him because i do i do forgive him because there's no sense in hanging on to it you know um but yeah so to answer your question it was i wasn't it took me a long time you know i remember my mom's sister saying to her right after he was killed like well at least you know where he was where he is now and my mom was just so angry at that because it's, you know, she's happy to hear that now, but, you know, it's taken 15 years to go, well, I know where he is now. Because sometimes we wouldn't hear from him for a year. We wouldn't know where he is, you know. Um, so, yeah, from the ages of 15 to 45, that's 30 years of just struggle after struggle after struggle. And every addiction you can think of. What can we do? Like, is it, can we right the wrong as, as you say, like, like what, what's, what's the good that can come out of this or what's, what can we do as a result of this? Honestly, I think you start with the people who continue to go to church because even though they know that it happens, they continue to go to church. They're to me are almost the worst kind because they're just turning a blind eye. And if they don't go to church, then the, 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 the number of people going to church will, it'll just keep dropping and dropping and dropping. Whereas the church won't be getting all the money that goes into the collection baskets. So then it forces the clergy, the leaders to start turning in these priests and stop the corruption, this, 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 systemic you know issue it's right at the root of it and it's um 
the secrecy is in, is incredible. So if you don't go to church and you don't support that organization, then they'll have to start telling the truth so that you cl- you clean it up. You clean up the churches and then people can return to going back to the place where they want to worship, knowing that this isn't going on anymore because they've stopped it because no one will sit by and you know, watch people just priests getting shuffled around again. You know, and it need it also needs to be centralized. Like you need to have like a, you know, one place that's like, okay, we're going to centralize this. We're going to, um, you know, work together to bring all of the cases together. Whether these people, whether the um, priests are dead or not, doesn't matter. We need to bring it. If it if someone said something, it's probably true. Why would you want to say something about a priest? you know, that wasn't the truth. What's, what's, you know, so I think you got a, someone in, and I want to be a part of it. Like, I really, I think that that's, I found sort of my, you know, my, where I want to be an activist. I want to keep this conversation going. And I think the statute of limitations needs to change. I don't think that there should be any time, you know, if it's 30 years and it takes someone, a victim to take 30 years to tell their story so be it you know we we don't know what it takes for us to change and if it's courage or if it's just the last resort I don't know what it is that it takes for people to talk about their abuse but eventually they will I've been getting so many emails and and private messages from people who yeah it's it's been amazing and heavy you know. So is it going to be hard singing this song for the rest of your life? Or is there certain, a certain amount of empowerment in, in telling it the way you have and stuff like that? Or It's, I, it's hard, but it's more empowering. It's more like, I'm, I'm just talking the truth right now. So no fear, just keep going, you know, like, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I really just hope that because I know that people get really uncomfortable, you know, the Catholics sitting out there, they don't like to hear it. But unfortunately, the church can't police this themselves anymore. They're not policing it. There's a there's a there's pedophilia in the church. They got to they got to. You know. The the grand juries need to get involved now. Wow, it's a, it's an amazing song and an amazing story, and uh, it 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 must not be easy telling it, but I, I sure do appreciate you taking the time and and sharing it with us today. Well, thank you for you know wanting to do a story on it because I or like to do a podcast on it because I think that it's not everybody wants to hear this stuff, you know. Like I, it's funny I'm reading this book right now called the great alone and it starts out you know because i i would like to write a, a, a book about my brother it's been on my you know i have i write a lot i've written tons i just have not put it into book form yet but it is definitely you know something that i strive to do in the future um but i'm reading this book and it starts out just so happy and and i'm like oh yeah this is the kind of story i want to read i want to you know, this is, 
I don't want to, I don't want to tell a story about my brother. It's too unhappy. Like, this is what I want to read. And just like, as I turn the next page, everything just turns to, you know, it goes from beautiful gold to just rust. Like it's not, it's so heartbreaking and you name it, it goes wrong. And yet I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm two chapters left and I'm, it's got me so, I, I think about it every night. It's actually taken the place of the songs that have been running through my head. <laughs> the new obsession. <laughs> the new obsession, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's not easy for people to want to hear this stuff, but I think it's essential at this part, at this point. If oh, we want to. Yeah, it's so important. It really is. Like, this is Truth and Reconciliation Day. Nobody, you know, it's kind of, you, you, oh, no, there's going to be another grave. You know this. You know what, people? Let's just force change, you know. We the Indian Act, let's go back to it and start fresh and and you know, everybody should learn exactly how corrupt the government of Canada was and and still is by not making changes fast enough. The priest made sure there was gas in the car. He knew he'd have to run like the devil. He stole the mask offering strength from the cup. He promised you a place up in heaven. Brenly and Lisa continue to work away out a new Madison Violet album, which will likely be released early in 2022. They've started doing some shows post-pandemic, but recently had to postpone a European tour until next year. As always, I hope that you'll support these musicians and help them continue to do what they love most by buying some music or merchandise as directly as possible. At madisonviolet.com, you can find CDs, t-shirts, handwritten lyrics, and even some gorgeous hats made by Brinley's mother, Valerie. You can find out more about the music used in this episode and find other episodes, and you can join the mailing list at flywithyourshadow.com. I always really love hearing from listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email me at flywithyourshadow at gmail.com. The show is always ad-free. It costs you absolutely nothing. If you want to support the show, and I hope that you might, please share the episode with someone who might enjoy it. Your help spreading the word would be greatly appreciated. My name is Jeff Robson. I really thank you for listening. I hope you got something out of this show, and I hope you'll join me again on the next episode of Fly With Your Shadow. Fly with your shadow.